Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you all. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Mudiwa Gavaza, and for today, we do get into quite a fascinating discussion. It's something that we've touched on on the platform, uh, you know, a couple of times. But for today, you know, we've got a different angle that we're, you know, bringing it on to. And uh, we're going to have quite an interesting discussion around the issue of wills, estates, and the like. I think uh, it's one of those little-known things to say that uh, a lot of South Africans don't have wills. And when you talk to people, you know, in the financial planning fraternity, they do say that it's always advisable to have a will in place and to do some type of estate planning. So much so is, uh, you know, this issue and how big it is that there is a wills week that's actually running from uh, the 12th to the 16th of September. And uh, this is our little contribution to that, getting some insight insight into what's going on, what are some of the issues and how can we overcome getting more South Africans to actually plan when it comes to this issue of estates. So to help us to unpack all of this, we are joined by Harry Joffe, who is the head of legal over at Discovery Life and Discovery Life International. And he's going to be giving us a lot of insight into, you know, what's going on in and around the market. Harry, greetings to you today. Thank you, Buduaya. Good to be on your show. Thank you so much, uh, you know, for being with us today. I think uh, one of the key things that uh, might be a good launchpad for this discussion is maybe getting a sense around your role and the type of work that you and your team are doing around wills and that type of thing. Because I think Discovery is one of those names that is, you know, synonymous and is a household name across South Africa. But people tend to think about it within the context of things like vitality, the insurance product the medical staff, but wills, I, I don't know if that's uh, something that people typically think about or associate discovery with. So maybe a little bit of insight into the work that's being done there. Okay, great. But you were, so yeah, I primarily work for the, the life company and the investment company. Luckily, I don't get too involved in the medical aid side. The only time I do is when my my family or friends have the claim that doesn't get paid and then they come and shout at me. So, yeah, the Medicaid, I'm not too involved with. But the, the life and the investment side, we're very involved with because obviously it all fits together. You know, if you're taking out a life policy or you're taking out an investment, that's all growing your estate. That's all assets that are going to affect your estate one day. And that means the will is the ultimate end of what we do. So there's no point in us selling a life policy or selling you a unit trust or an endowment policy but we don't take care of your will. So when you die, your assets all get dispersed correctly. So the life policy is one aspect of it. The investment is another, but everything ties together through your will because it's only by having a will that you can have any kind of estate plan and any kind of efficiency in how your assets work. You know, I mean, I'm a big soccer fan and uh, I always say it's all very well having a great strike and scoring goals, but if you don't have a basic defense or a basic goalie, nothing happens. You need to have your basics first before you go forward. So if you don't have a will, you don't have anything. And you need to have your will and you need to have your planning around your will before you start going forward into the more exotic stuff like your 
your offshore assets, your offshore policies, your local policies, your local assets, etc., etc. So the world is a stop. It really does sound from what you're talking about to say that this is something that is basic when it comes to the financial planning that people should be having. And the fact that there's even a Will's Week, South Africa sort of points to how big of an issue this is. Maybe you could give us some insight into why we find ourselves in a situation where there aren't more South Africans who do have this as, you know, something that's basic out there. Is it a fear of, you know, maybe a morbid reality? Is it a lack of knowledge just around how important something like this or there are the factors at play? Well, Matthew, it's interesting. You know, it's not just a South African problem. If you if you look at the research done internationally, it's, it's a problem all over the world, even in the UK, for example, more than 50% of people don't have a will. I mean, that's a very high stat for for a country like that. So, yeah, first of all, it's pretty boring doing a will. You know, it's not exciting like taking an offshore investment or buying a, a share. That's exciting. But doing a will is mundane. It's boring. Secondly, as, as you say, it's, uh, it's scary because you have to consider your death. But thirdly, and this is what I always say to people, you know, when you do a will, that's the one time in your life you've got to be honest. You might tell your friends, that your spouse is wonderful, your kids are wonderful, everything is wonderful. But when you're doing your will, you got to look at yourself in the eye and you've got to say, can I leave my wonderful kid a million rand in cash? Will he or she be able to handle that money? Do I leave my spouse money? Do they need money? Do, they, do I trust them to handle big amounts of money? Do I trust them to pay off the bond? What's going to happen to my house? Do I want it to go to them or someone else? You know, there's a lot of hard, honest decisions you've got to make for probably the first time in your life and the only time in your life. Everything else you can fudge. But with your will, it's a very final document. You know, by the time it's being read, you're dead. It's too late to fix up a problem. If your child turns out to be not trustworthy when you passed on, well, that's too late. So you've got to, you know, you've got to be hard and you've got to look at the future. You've got to think to yourself, what's going to happen to my family in the future? Where are they going to live? How are they going to turn out? What do I need to protect? So A, it's difficult, B, it's morbid, but C, it's, it's something that you need to sit and actually think about, which people don't like doing. When it comes to, you know, all of that then, Harry, and apart from the fact that we do find ourselves in a situation where a lot of people don't have this document or don't like thinking about what happens after they're gone or, you know, I guess the general awareness is, I don't know what better word to use, but there's upkeep when it comes to a will for those that do have them, right? You can write one when you're, let's say, 20 or 25, but your life might be completely different by the time you are 50 years old and if you haven't been updating this will you know keeping it keeping it current based on your circumstances then i guess in that particular case it would be almost as good as not even having something like that in place yeah so the two things they would do well, first of all obviously that the will needs to be signed and i can't tell you how many clients we've got that have got wills because we know we've sent them the will to sign so there's a will on their desk but they haven't signed the thing. And then, of course, it's almost useless without being signed. Uh, it's, uh, it's really no good. So that's the first big problem as part of upkeep is to sign the will and get it back to us to store it for you. Hugely important. But, I mean, you're so right in that it's got to be updated. There, there are legendary stories about people that die with the wills that are 30 years old, 40 years old. You know, I'll give you two because I, I love these kind of stories. So the one story is we had an individual that died in his late 80s. So he's literally 88, 
and the beneficiary to his one policy and the heir in his estate is some lady that no one in the family knows about. You know, not his wife, not his children, not his grandchildren. I mean, the guy's 88, so he hasn't been having an affair or anything. <laughs> and they found out this was a, a girlfriend of his from about 60 years ago before he even got married. And now he's apparently forgotten to change the world. We hope he forgot and it wasn't done on purpose. But I mean, you know, that's an issue. Now that there's some, if this lady's still alive, she's uh, in the world, she's a beneficiary of the policies, she has to get paid out. There's obviously maybe a claim, but that's a different story. You know, and then we have the other issue now, which is also fascinating, where things change. You know, marriage now isn't the same as marriage was 30 years ago, as we know. We've got same-sex marriages, we've got common law type marriages. You know, so if you say in your, in your will, I leave it to my children if they get married, or I leave it to my married children, who knows what married is by the time your will comes into play? You should actually be more accurate in your wording. And we've had another interesting, more sensitive issue, which came up in the UK, where the dad died, left his assets to his son, Henry, and by the time dad died, the son had had a, a sex change. It's no longer the son, it's now the daughter. You know, and that uh, can be quite problematic because now have you left it to the person or haven't you left it to the person? You know, there are all these issues which come up. And it means the other issue which has come up as well in a South African court is, is an adopted child included as a blood relative? So if you use the word blood relative in your will, your trust, and the child's been adopted, you know, that becomes very problematic legally. And it's, again, you know, we, we instinctively think, well, it's obvious, but it's not so obvious. If another child takes umbrance from a different marriage and says that child shouldn't benefit because they're adopted, they're not a blood child, it ends up in court. Uh, it's a very dicey debate where that will go. So very important. You should sign your will. But we say every year you should relook at your will and update it, or at least update it when there's a life-changing event. You know, you get married, you get divorced, you have children, you have grandchildren. Something changes in your life. I mean, the other funny thing is, Muti, where we have the case where spouses get divorced and they leave each other or they forget to change their will. So the ex-spouse is still an heir in the will. You know, I mean, that's, that's not funny for them. It's funny for me legally because I'm looking at when they find me. Uh, and now they're stuck. There is funny uh, provision in the Wills Act which says if a spouse dies within three months of a divorce, the ex-spouse can't inherit. So they kind of give you three months to change your will after a divorce. But if you don't do it and it's now more than three months, the ex-spouse can inherit. And I mean, you know, you can imagine how, how that ends up. So yes, updating is hugely important. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it because a lot of, uh, you know, I like the fact that you've come at us with uh, some of these very real and practical examples that you're giving to us because this is everyday life, right? There's the shifting winds all the time. People are getting married. People are having children. People are divorcing. People, all of these life changes are happening all the time. And that does affect the estate planning, you know, from that point of view. And I guess, you know, the advice of looking at something like this every year is definitely a good piece of advice, especially if it's going to help you to avoid the situation where your girlfriend from 60 years ago is still eligible, <laughs> uh, still eligible to, to, to inherit from your estate. Now, one of the other things that uh, is quite interesting about the world we live in, we often talk about globalization and the fact that the world is becoming smaller and uh, South Africans are no different. A lot of South Africans are on the move. Uh, 
a lot of South Africans are doing business internationally. A lot of South Africans you know, have emigrated. Uh, people have children abroad, etc. Um, are there any provisions, uh, solutions, services that cater to that piece of offshore services? If I am engaged with discovery in South Africa, do I need necessarily to have different, I guess, provision service providers for my assets or whatever I do in other countries? Or, you know, does a company like yours help to service all of those interests? Right. So, I mean, great question with you, because again, it's very practical, but most of our clients, even big or small, have got some kind of investments offshore, some kind of assets offshore. So, you know, we work around that in a couple of ways. First of all, Offshore wills. So, you know, if you've got a, a flat in London, for example, you might well need a will in London to cater for that. We do have a, a ring of partnerships. So there's certain law firms overseas where we'll refer clients to to get their will drafted. I mean, I won't draft an offshore will because I wouldn't touch something in a jurisdiction where I'm not proficient. So I'll do a South African will, but I wouldn't do a UK will, for example. But more importantly for us, because I mean, I work for a life insurance company, as you know, we've got a product. Well, let me say we've got products that are very suited for clients with offshore assets. So our first product we've got is what we call the Dollar Life product. And that is a policy issued through our Guernsey office, which where the premium is payable in dollars and the proceeds are payable in dollars. And that's very useful for our clients. So, for example, you know, you're sitting with a flat in the UK. When you die in South Africa, you'll find you're going to have what we call death duties or CITES taxes in the UK. So you'll end up paying a 40% tax on that flat in London. And the question is, of course, how does your executive pay that money? Because your local estate doesn't have foreign cash. Now, what Dollar Life does is it pays out in dollars to a bank account anywhere in the world. And that means you can now create these foreign cash holdings to settle your foreign death duties or your foreign taxes. And what we've done as well is closer to home. We partnered with a trust company in Mauritius, which will set up offshore trusts for our clients at a cheaper rate if it's going to be a beneficiary of one of our offshore products. So the client can have an offshore trust in Mauritius to be the beneficiary of their dollar policy. And then they can know that when they die, the money pays into this offshore trust and the offshore trust can settle their death duties overseas or, or things like that. Another point, of course, is that you mentioned that you could have children overseas. If you've got a child living, say, in Ireland, and you die with a South African life policy, you know, we still have foreign exchange control in South Africa. It's not so simple for that child in Ireland to access that money from South Africa. I mean, it can be done. Let me not let me be clear on that. It can be done, but it's a process. It's an administrative process. But if you've got our dollar policy, you can simply make the child in Ireland the beneficiary. And because the policy is already an offshore policy, we can pay when you die to a child anywhere in the world, to a bank account anywhere in the world. So it takes away that problem of foreign exchange control limitations or administrative issues when you die. I like the fact that we are, we really are uh, getting very practical with everything that we're talking about. And like you said, there are so many of these scenarios uh, where people don't think about the implications of what it what does it mean if you are based in South Africa, but perhaps you have someone who you'd want to be a beneficiary on your estate who is living in another country, or you know you have international businesses, etc. And at least it sounds like there's accessible solutions 
solutions to all of these different problems that we have out there. Sorry if I can jump in. I mean, I have to tell you about a case I get all the time. I'm sorry <laughs> to jump in, but yes. it's excited to talk about this. So yeah. literally every month I'll get a call from a person or a, a beneficiary in South Africa, and the story will be, oh, my dad just died. He's left me and my sister a whole lot of money. I live in South Africa. My sister lives in uh, Australia. She doesn't have a bank account. How does the money get paid to her? She doesn't have a South African bank account. What do we do? You know, and then it's not so straightforward because to open a South African bank account from Australia is not so simple with all the, the requirements and the documents. And of course, we as a South African insurer will very rarely pay directly to an Australian bank account. We will on occasion, but it's not so simple. We don't like doing that. So then it gets stuck. How does this poor Australian lady get her money? And then the South African daughter will say, can't you pay me? But we can't because she's not the beneficiary of the policy, for example. And that becomes a, a, a gridlock. We don't actually know what to do until the poor Australian daughter opens a bank account. So it's a very real problem. And that's why there should be an element of offshore products in your planning if you've got kids overseas. No, most certainly. And I guess, like you said, one of those things that people aren't uh, aren't thinking about. And like you said, I think that's a probably a very real example that you said. I can think of my own family and we're dispersed across a number of different countries. Uh, so something like that definitely hits home. So before we let you go, Harry, uh, on a final point from us is, uh, you know, when it comes to actually the process of starting, because uh, I think we began this conversation by saying that uh, not only in South Africa, but around the world, right, there aren't, there is a problem where not enough people have wills in place. Where and how does a person actually begin a will? And when I say begin, I mean, what are the major asset classes that people should be thinking about when it comes to how they think about divvying up their estates, you know, for when they are gone? Uh, should I be worried about maybe my portfolio of shares, you know, over my household goods, over any policies that I have versus businesses, etc.? How do I think about that? If, if the only asset I have is literally the couch and the bed that I have to sleep on, does that warrant a will where and how do people first begin and what are the major asset classes that people should be thinking about yeah but do we i mean it's a, it's a it's a good question it's a very real question so you know people often say to us well i don't have anything i don't need a will and then you'll say to them well do you live in a house and they say yes i'll stay in a house do you have children yes i have children um so really you've got assets that you've got to start looking about i mean you might not see your children as an asset <laughs> There might be a liability, but you, you've got to look after them in your world when you die. So the starting off point, and we'll stress this, is speak to a financial advisor. Get a, a whole, there's different aspects to, to financial advice. You should obviously get a will done to start. Your financial advisor will do what we call a financial plan. He or she will look at your assets. They'll look at what your requirements are. They'll look at your needs. They'll look at your liquidity. You should be doing an estate plan which means what happens to my assets when I die. You should be doing a liquidity plan. And this is my favorite one because most people can't afford to die. You know, you have to just keep living because if you die, you'll be in serious trouble. So you've got to look at an asset and liquidity plan, asset and liability plan. And that's our financial advisor, your first port of call. Your financial advisor can't do it all. You'll often have to bring in a legal person or a, you know, a wills or an estate person like we've got. But uh, you need to start the process and you need to sit with your financial planner 
go through what you've got, go through what your liabilities are, go through what your assets are, go through what your requirements are, and then start. Start with a will, start with a liquidity, with a product, with a, an estate plan, and then you work on from there. I think what's important, though, is not to say, hey, I'm too young, you know, I don't need to worry because we all know, you know, time passes very quickly and next thing you're 50 and you're old and then it's a bit late to start. Secondly, don't say I don't have any assets because, as I say, if you've got a place where you're living and you've got family, you've got assets already and you've got, you've got trouble already. Um, you've got people that need to be looked after. And then, of course, thirdly, if you've got debt, you know, you have to plan around it because if you die and you've got debt, the bank don't, aren't going to say, shame, the poor guy's dead, we'll let him go. You know, they'll come after you for your bonds, your overdrafts. They'll come after your estate. So you need to plan. And if you fail to plan, I mean, you you, you plan to fail, as the old saying goes. You, you need to get things going. And, I mean, there's so many different facets about where the insurer, where we can help. We can help with the world. We can help with a policy locally or internationally. We can help with investments. We can help with debt cover. We can help with... Uh, contracts, you know, if you've got a business, as you said, you might have a business. And again, this is my other favorite where we've got two business partners, they get on very well and they're in partnership. The one partner dies, they've got no contracts. Next thing, the partner who's alive finds himself in business with his partner's wife because she's now the heir to the estate and she's taken over the shares. And you might enjoy having lunch with your partner and his wife on a Sunday, but you're not going to enjoy being in business with his wife necessarily. She might be a good business lady, don't get me wrong, but that's not who you're meant to be in business with. And that's why you need contracts, you need structures, you need everything in place so when something goes wrong, uh, things can at least work. Else you end up, I can tell you, and I've seen it, if there's no contracts, you end up in court and it gets messy and there's often not a solution which works for everyone. Once again, you know, really appreciating the, 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 what you call this, the practical examples. I hadn't even thought about that last example that you gave us about the fact that you know, one might end up being in business with, it might not be a partner, but, you know, the heir, whoever the heir or is to, to that specific estate. And also just the advice to say that whatever you have, you must just start when it comes to, when it comes to actually uh, planning for those estates and actually having something in place. As a follow-up, and I guess this is where we'll end up, end of today's discussion is a follow-up to something that you said. You mentioned it maybe two or three times, is the issue of the liquidity test. Uh, maybe we could go a little bit deeper just around that issue of liquidity because you did say what you call this, um, you did say that... Uh, sometimes people can't afford to die <laughs> and that's uh that's quite a startling statement to hear yeah but do i say it very often to our clients that are brokers you better keep living because you can't afford to die because if you think about it you know when you die there's certain immediate costs which which spring up first of all you've got to pay death duties or estate duty as we call it in south africa secondly you're gonna to have to pay income tax because the day you die, your tax year ends and you're going to have to pay income tax. Thirdly, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax because you're deemed to have sold off your capital assets, like your share portfolio you're talking about, and you're going to pay capital gains tax on that. Fourthly, all your debts have to now be paid, your bonds, your overdrafts, any other loans you've made have to be immediately paid. Next thing, of course, you have to pay your executor. Someone has to wind up your estate and they're going to charge you a fee for that which is typically 3.5% of your assets plus that. 
And then there's other bits and pieces of uh, liquidity that you need. You know, you need to, if you've got a property, for example, and you die, that property has to transfer to an heir. There wouldn't be transfer duty, but there'll be transfer costs in the sense that the conveyancer will charge you a tariff fee to, to transfer the property. If there's a bond that has to be cancelled, there'll be a bond cancellation fee. So there's costs around the property. And then, of course, if there's if there's issues around changing ownership of assets, there might be costs. So, you know, for example, if you, you're talking about your share portfolio, if you're transferring ownership of the shares potentially to heirs, there's capital gains taxes around those shares. It could be uh, share transfer taxes and things like that. So, you know, I've just given you a small list there, but uh, you can see it adds up quickly. And then if you've got assets overseas and you start paying death duties overseas as well, and you might have the case where you've got death duties overseas where they're lower than in South Africa, and then you'll pay the top up in South Africa. You know, there's a lot of things to get done here, apart from the fact that uh, your will, you might have to pay a cost to the master, you might have to pay a cost to value your assets for tax purposes. The list is endless. So you need a lot of liquidity to be able to afford to die in peace. And I can tell you, I'll tell you what my family say to me, is if you don't leave an estate with lots of liquidity, we're going to curse you upstairs. So just make sure your family don't curse you when you go. You want them to think fondly about you with good fond memories. We're, 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 we're laughing a little bit, you know, here, but it is, you know, quite a serious issue that you're raising. Very quickly, of all the things that you, you know, stating uh, that people tend to be charged on, etc., where you need this liquidity, in your experience, what tends to be the item that takes up what you call this the most i guess the one that usually takes up the most of the liquidity is it the taxes what is it that's a combination with you it's a combination of all the taxes because you know there are a lot of that between income tax state duty capital gains tax there's a lot of taxes and the winding up fees so the executive charges to wind up and all the other winding up bits and pieces so that that's generally the two major charges on those facts all right so that's been it very fascinating discussion as i said getting uh i think we got a little bit into the weeds around uh you know what's going on with the wills uh but very good and necessary given the type of discussion that we are having right now around the fact that uh, you know not enough people in south africa and other parts of the world have these wills in place harry just also highlighting the fact that no matter what you have you just need to start on the process and once you start the process you know there's a maintenance aspect to it because if you leave it too late uh, you might find yourself passing away with a will that is 50 or 60 uh, years old so the advice coming through from there is to have a situation where you are checking and updating these things at least once a year and also the other advice is that either once a year or whenever there is some type of a significant uh, life event or life change that happens whether it's having children being born, be it getting married, all of those, uh, you know, big life uh, situations because they do have a big impact on your circumstances, your finances and the like. And then at the end, talking about, you know, some of uh, the aspects uh, that go into the high cost. I, 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 I shudder to even say a statement like this, but the high cost of dying <laughs> because there are, you know, a lot of costs associated with, 
particularly um, highlighting the taxes, uh, the different taxes that go into it, as well as the winding up costs for the estate. So that's been it. Uh, that was us. We were talking to Harry Joffe, who is uh, the head of legal over at Discovery Life and Discovery Life International. Harry, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Badiwe, and thank you for for enjoying all the, the jokes and the statements, <laughs> even though it's not a funny topic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. This is Mudiwa's Take. Very important topic, you know, around estate planning. We've had, uh, you know, this discussion a number of times on this platform, and uh, I think we've had it quite a bit with the team over at Sunlam. And now you have uh, the likes of Discovery also uh, sounding the alarm on this uh, particular issue. Uh, Very important, you know, especially given the examples. I think the practical examples that Harry was giving uh, during the discussion are very important because. um, I, was, uh, I, I did say to him at some point that this is not science fiction. This is literally what people uh, are dealing with on a daily basis. There are all of these things that, uh, you know, happen, all of these unique situations and everyday situations that people face. And, you know, just having some element of planning uh, in place will definitely go a long way to keep people from having unnecessary headaches you know, when the unfortunate in the unfortunate uh, situation. Uh, that some of these things do occur. So yes, Wool's Week. Uh, let's see what uh, you know. All of this uh, is about. Hopefully, uh, we can get more and more people to understand the issues, understand what's going on, and actually reduce this as a problem. Because as we said, um, a lot of people do say that this is basic uh, when it comes to financial planning. And if you're planning some of these things, hopefully, uh, it means that you have good planning around the rest of your financial life. And that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcast on Business Live. That's under the podcast Business Day Spotlight tab on Twitter. We're hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you choose to get your pods casted. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producer is Paige Muller. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail. And this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight which is a multimedia live production. So for myself and the rest of the team, it is a good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.